Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Father, thank you for this opportunity just to worship you. And I pray that as we express our love to you as we celebrate your presence, Father, that you would find it pleasing in your sight and that you would grant us your favor this morning as we grant together. Remember, there's many who are not able to do so and our hearts go towards them. Bless this offering and all who give. Lord, as this is another opportunity just to show our worship and putting our faith and trust in you, knowing, Lord, that you provide and that you're good, faithful God. In your name we pray these things. Amen. As we come to the conclusion of Mark, in chapter 16, those first eight verses, an empty tomb and a fulfilled promise. This may sound familiar as we go into, especially if you've been in our adult core classes, speaking of the early church. I'm going to ask you a question or ask you, ask you to do something here for me as you're turning there to Mark. Imagine you're a member of the Church of Rome about 30 years at the crucifixion of Jesus. So you're in about 63, 64, 65 AD, and you're a member of the Roman church or the church in Rome. Recognizing, remember, that during the first century, Rome was heavily influenced by Greek mythology and the practice of emperor worship, also known as the imperial cult. Most inhabitants of Rome were polytheistic, They worship several different gods and demigods, depending on their own situations and their preferences. It can move back and forth. For this reason, Rome contained many temples, shrines, and places of worship without a centralized ritual or practice. Almost anything goes. Most forms of worship were tolerated in the empire. Roman authorities didn't care who you worshipped as long as you included the emperor and didn't create problems with other religious systems. Now that was a problem for both the Christians and the Jews during the middle of the first century. That's because both Christians and Jews were fiercely monotheistic. They believed in one God. They proclaimed the unpopular doctrine that there is only one God, and by extension, they refused to worship the emperor or even acknowledge him as any kind of deity. For these reasons... Christians and Jews begin to experience intense persecution. For example, the Roman emperor Claudius, he banished all Jews from the city in Rome in 49 AD. Hence we hear Priscilla and Aquila there in Acts. This decree lasted until his death five years later. This eventually led to a mass persecution of Christians during the reign of Nero. Most of us have heard of Nero. He was a very tortuous man in his spirit and his mind. As uh, Dustin alluded to, many of them were crazy, and he took the cake for most of it. Tacticus, in his book, The The Annals, published a few years before the event, wrote this. Therefore, to stop the rumor that Nero had set Rome on fire, he falsely charged with guilt, and he punished with the most fearsome tortures the persons commonly called Christians who were generally hated for their enormities. Christus, the founder of that name, was put to death as a criminal by Pontius Pilate. Here we have a Roman historian who knows the facts here of Jesus. It's a historical fact. 
Accordingly, first those who were arrested, who confessed they were Christians, next on their information, a vast multitude were convicted, not so much on the charge of burning the city, but as they were accused of hating the human race. In their very deaths, they were made the subjects of sport. It was not enough to persecute him and to put him to death, but Nero had to make sport of it. They were covered with the hides of wild animals and worried to death by dogs. Dogs would be set on them. Or they were nailed to crosses or set on fire. And when the day would get dark, they would be burned to serve for the evening lights. The early Christians were the early lamplights of that century. So they could go down the boulevards and see. Now again, imagine putting yourself into that decade, into that point of history. You're a member of that church of Rome. You're following Christ. You're meeting secretly to worship Christ. You're accused of hating people. You're accused of all the different things that Dustin was sharing with earlier, that they believed that the early Christians were cannibalistic and they were crazy and they they didn't follow the regular norms. You're being persecuted for your faith. Not just being ridiculed, but you're being persecuted. Your life and liberty is at risk. You're asking yourself, should I become a Christian? Would you not? Who is this Jesus? Is he someone that's worth following? The belief that he died and he was buried and he rose again, is this worth my life? Is it worth the life of my family and my friends? These people are facing death every day. Not a peaceful death, or I lived a life death, a full life death, but a very painful one a humiliating one, a torturous death. As we look at Mark, Mark is written to those Christians going through this time. We must remember this. As we're reading this, it is written to those Christians who are facing that persecution. He is writing to encourage them, to remind them of who Jesus is. He's empowering them to be willingly to die for the sake of Jesus' name. Tie me up to the stake. Burn me as a light in the middle of the night. I will follow Jesus. This is what he's encouraging them to do or to stand firm in. In today's passage, Mark records the climax of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is now Sunday. Jesus died on a Friday. He was buried that evening, but not forgotten as these same three ladies that we read of earlier in 15, 40, and 47. Mark now records their testimony of the fateful morning when they came on Sunday. Let's read this passage together. Mark chapter 16, those first eight verses. Mark writes, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices, so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as I told you or as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for, they, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone 
for they were afraid. Father, we read this in the safety of our own church, legally, with no worry of any pain, no worry of any persecution. But the original readers of this might have been reading it in a darkened house with just little candlelights, as one would read out loud in whispers. People would set forward to hear these wonderful words of truth. This passage we're about to read would lift the hearts of those who might have bared the marks of beatings and the ridicule of lost homes and families and spouses and members of their family. So let us put aside every weight, open up our hearts to receive this as they did. Let us see the preciousness of these eight verses. These words here are more than just letters on a page, more coming to us than from Greek texts, but these are the words of the living God. And may we respond accordingly to these words and the message it proclaims. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The climax of the gospel of Mark is that Jesus has risen. Amen. Mark, the king of brevity, is quick and to the point. His thing is, it's simple. The tomb is empty. He has risen. He cannot be found here. Jesus is not here. He is risen, and he's looking forward to reunion with his disciples, especially Peter. With these eight verses, Mark concludes his evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Remember, that is why Mark is writing to this church of Rome. They're facing intense persecution, and he wants to say this. Remember, this is the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God, and I'm going to give you evidence that he's the Son of God, that he's the Messiah. And he ends with, he has risen, the tomb is empty. This would have been unique. This is what they've heard from Peter and others, but now they're seeing it probably for the first time written by someone who is a close associate. Many consider Mark as the first gospel written. And here they have these accounts, a first-hand account of what is happening. Jesus is risen, just as he had promised and prophesied in chapter 8, and chapter 9, and in chapter 10. The Apostle Paul, who wrote to the Church of Rome a little bit earlier than this, remarks that the empty tomb proves that Jesus is God when he writes that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. His resurrection proves, gives evidence of his nature and identity. It is the capstone to his claim that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. And they would hold on to this truth. Interesting, Mark does not present a defense of Jesus' resurrection. He doesn't get into an apology of why we believe. He just simply records that Jesus rode from the dead. And he says this is a historical fact by recording several things in these eight verses. The first thing we see is he gives us the time of when the women went to the tomb. It was early Sunday morning before the sun was rising. He's giving specifics here. He gives the reason for their going to the tomb. The women are going to anoint the body. Remember, they only had a few hours on Friday to bury the body. They were not able to anoint the body. Anointing the body in those days was an act of love. 
They would anoint the body to help keep the stench of the body down as the body would begin to decay because people like us, would, you know, we would go and visit the graves. They would go visit the tombs. And they wanted to give their last act of love to the man that they followed, the man they believed who was the Messiah. Their concern about moving the large stone, he gives us a little interplay of what's going on. As the ladies take off, they halfway there probably, they realize, wait a second, there's a large stone in the way. How are we going to move it? And Mark even makes a comment, it was a large stone. And Walking up, they see that it's been moved. Mark is pointing out the size there twice in order to demonstrate these three ladies themselves are not going to be able to roll that stone away as nor could a couple men. At this time, they probably did not know that the centurions were there. And even if they did, they would not expect them to move the stone for them. But then also he records it and makes it a historical fact by giving their reaction to the events. They responded as anyone would at the site. They were alarmed, Mark tells them. Where is the body? Who is this man who is sitting here? They're trembling. They have a rational fear at this encounter, the supernatural encounter of this man sitting there and Jesus gone. There's astonishment. They're not truly sure of what is happening or the meaning of what's happening. Did Jesus rise? It seems like they were confused. Jesus had told them three times at least, but still it's not coming in. But then we see silence, the fear of what others might think. Let's consider the young man that greets them in the tomb. Typically when we read in Scripture, especially the New Testament and even the Old, white or shining clothes in Scriptures is usually a mark of a heavenly visitation. Matthew in his gospel identifies the man as an angel. Mark just calls him a man, a young man. But scripture informs us that angels serve as witnesses to the acts of God both here on earth and in heaven. And in Isaiah and Ezekiel and in John's revelation, we see many of those things which angels give witness to all things. Now interestingly, the gospel gives us no indication of how the resurrection occurred. We don't know if the Holy Spirit came down on them. We don't know if there was some type of thing going on. We don't know if Jesus' body was there the whole time or what. But in some way, the resurrection happened. It doesn't tell us how. It's just that it did. This young man, this angel, also reassures him, not only in giving him the message that Jesus is risen, but he also reassures him. He uses the name of Jesus that would be very familiar to them. Jesus of Nazareth. Not only does the angel make an announcement and tells them what is going on, he is not here, this tomb is empty, he is risen, but he gives them instructions to tell the disciples to go meet Jesus in Galilee. A reunion is promised where Peter and the disciples will be forgiven and accepted. You might recall Jesus' prediction back in Mark chapter 14, where he says, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You will all desert me. Remember, Peter said, never, never, I will die for you. And the rest joined in with Peter. But after telling them that he would, they would desert him, he says, but after I am raised up, I will be, go before you to Galilee. Now, personally, I believe this promise here. Remember, we're in the church of Rome. We're sitting there. We're hearing these words for the very first time from these members who would be suffering many things. I believe this promise would have been very important to that church of Rome, mainly because Peter was very closely connected to the church of Rome. 
to read of their teacher's denial and desertion several chapters back would have been hard for them to accept and maybe even say, I don't even know if I want to accept this. Now, they probably heard it from Peter's mouth. I'm sure they heard it from Paul. I'm sure it was something, but to hear it now from a recording, from something that is written down, must have been very difficult. But yet, now they read how the angel specifically points out Peter and Jesus' desire to see him. There's going to be a sweet reunion for the one who denied and deserted Christ. Again, Mark's record is simple and it's to the point. The tomb is empty. Jesus has risen. He has no need for it. You know, you can just return it to owner. Earlier, Landon read in our scripture, reading how the resurrection of Jesus was part of the teaching of the early church. Paul writes, as this is of first importance. And it was accepted without argument. The resurrection is the power of the gospel. And we, we sung of that in our songs this morning. However, you and I realize it's not everyone, not everyone wants to accept the supernatural event. Even today, there are skeptics who claim Jesus' body must have been stolen. But if you would take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 28, we see that that was anticipated. The religious leaders anticipated that something might happen to the body of Jesus. They knew that Jesus had proclaimed this. They had heard Jesus proclaim that he would rise from the grave to combat this, and that they put in place a plan. In Matthew chapter 28, look at verse 11. It says, while they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people this. His disciples came by at night, stole him away while he was asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ear, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Obviously, if they were to come and steal the body, these Roman centurions would pay for it with their life. Look at verse 15. So they took the money and they did as they were directed. And this story has spread among the Jews to this day. And there are still some modern skeptics who would buy into this. But Matthew is saying, listen, show me the body. We've been here. We've seen it. It's empty. We were there. The ladies were there and many others. Some would say the women went to the wrong tomb. They just didn't remember where it was. But as we look here, Mark records just last week that Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where Joseph Arimathea had laid him. This was Joseph's tomb. I think they could recognize which tomb it was. Thirdly, some would say that Jesus did not die but was just weak and faint. We talked a little bit about that this morning in our Sunday school. He was just weak and faint, and he regained strength, and he walked out. Yet, again, Mark tells us that there were women looking on from a distance who was Mary, Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and the younger and of Joseph and Salome, who saw Jesus die. We had the testimony of the Roman guards who reported it to Pilate, and Joseph of Arimathea, who supervised the burial of Jesus. These things hold no water and hold no weight. You and I can find confidence in the gospel's account. Mark would tell these Roman readers of his gospel, you can find confidence in what you believe, in what you're dying for. You can have confidence in the gospel accounts. And if that's not enough, Paul, 
who also was known to the church of Rome and wrote to them, points out that Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And as Landon read earlier, he appeared to Peter and the other disciples. He appeared more than 500 followers at one time. Paul says many of them are still alive. Go and ask them and see if their witness, if their testimony is true. He appeared to James and the apostles as well as Paul on the road to Damascus. You and I must recognize that there is confidence in the gospel that Jesus rose from the dead. These readers of Mark, this, this Roman church, needs to find confidence and find strength for the pain and suffering they were facing. For Jesus is risen. His tomb is empty. This gospel of the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ Paul wrote is of first importance. So important that he tells the Galatians that if anyone comes preaching to you a gospel contrary to this one gospel that you received, let him be accursed. You and I have no other gospel. There is nothing else that must be preached from the pulpits is that Christ is risen. The resurrection is essential to the gospel. Without it, Paul tells us that there is no power in our faith, in our belief. In 1 Corinthians 15 that we read earlier, Paul contends that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then Christ is dead. That our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We are all liars. We are all misguided or we are fooled. There's no hope for those that have died before us. He says there's no hope for those of us that are alive. There's no salvation. There's no reconciliation with God. If Christ has not risen from the dead, then you and I are lost, enslaved to our sins, powerless prey to Satan, and destined to die and be separated from God forever. However, Mark writes so that we may have confidence, a bold confidence. The grave is empty, for Jesus has risen. Now, this resurrection gave boldness and courage to Peter. As we think of the one who denied and deserted his Messiah. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Acts chapter 2. Again, when we read familiar stories, we just pass over so quickly. The power and truth that's found. Again, written not just for historical facts but written to give us confidence, to give us strength. And here in Acts chapter 2, somewhere around 50 days after the death and the resurrection of Christ, we see the boldness and courage of one who denied his Savior and fled. Peter preached with boldness in front of the crowds, the same crowds that demanded the death of Christ. Look at chapter 2 of Acts. Look at verse 22 where Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, spending 40 days with his Savior, recognizing that he's no longer dead but risen. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. You know what he's done. You crucified him in spite of his healings, 
in spite of his powers, in spite of his message. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Look at this verse. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. These verses encapsulate the song of the hymn, One Day. One day the grave could conceal him no longer. One day the stone rolled away from the door. Then he arose over death he had conquered. Now is ascended my Lord forevermore. Death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him from rising again. Amen? That's the power of the gospel. I pray today that you have accepted and embraced the resurrection of Christ as your hope and your security and your joy. So many of us are following after things that have no power. We have our dreams and our aspirations, those things that we live for and maybe something that we're willing to die for, but they have no eternal value. We're looking for retirement. We're looking for pleasures of the flesh. We're looking for a career fulfillment. We're looking for all these things. And unfortunately, there are churches that are doing all they could to attract these type of people. And then they give them a gospel-less message. They may believe in the resurrection, but it truly has no power. You today may say, why is my life not filled with the same power and the boldness and the courage of these men and women? It's because you have not considered the power of the resurrection. Of how it's not just something that's a historical fact, but it gave confidence, it gave power to those. And as they, they read it, they're now hearing it for the first time from a trusted source who has laid out the life of Christ. They had heard it from Peter. They have heard it from Priscilla and Aquila. They have heard it from others. But now here is a source that will last for eternity. He has risen. They accepted and embraced it. And they were willing to go to the cross. They were willing to wear the hides of animals and willing to allow themselves to be burned as nightlights in order to claim that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. So here are you. Let's put you into that Roman church. What would you do? What would you say? Would you have that boldness and confidence? Let me ask you, do you have the boldness and confidence today in your workplace? To say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power unto salvation. You have the confidence and the boldness that comes with an empty tomb, for he is risen. How does this relate to the Roman church in Mark's time? How does this relate to us today? I'd like to spend just a few moments on that. Now, the resurrection of Jesus is more than just a historical fact. I'm afraid that many times in too many churches and too many pulpits and in too many people who proclaim the name of Christ, that's where it starts and ends. 
You don't need to defend it. You just believe it. If you had to defend it, you would have a difficult time doing it. And I'm not here saying that does not make you a Christian. But all it does is it stops and starts. Jesus rose. You believe that. That's all you need. Jesus rose from the dead. But let me share with you that it's meant to do more than just give evidence of the nature and identity of Christ. It does do that, and it's an important part of the resurrection, but it's meant to do so much more than that. Paul informs that Roman church that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The same power that said Jesus arise is the same power that makes you and I alive. It's more than just a historical fact. It's more than just some type of thing that you and I need to know. The Bible tells us that those of us that have repented of dead works and put our trust that God has accepted the works of Christ on our behalf for salvation, that we are now alive. Don't take my word for it. Let's, let's go to Scripture. Scripture says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God has made us alive together with Christ. He goes on to say, For as in Adam all died, that's you and I, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, doing what? Having forgiven us all of our trespasses. He goes on to say, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's the great exchange we spoke of two weeks ago, that he might bring us to God. What a great concept. What a great thought. Being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Just as Jesus has been made alive, Scripture tells us, so have you and I. The problem is, is so many of us don't realize how dead we truly were. Or maybe how truly dead you are today. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Romans 6. And we're going to camp there and we'll finish there. In Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Paul is writing again to the same Roman church that Mark writes his gospel to. Now, Paul wrote his letter to Romans around 57 AD, while Mark is thought to be written somewhere around 64 AD. So what is that? About seven years difference. In chapter 6 of Romans, look at verse 4. Paul writes to this group of believers. He's not able to be with them, but he's wanting to encourage them. He recognizes that persecution is not there, but it's definitely heading towards there. He says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. We took to, looked at that last week. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul is telling them that since they were made alive, that you and I have a new walk to live. Mark now gives them a written record now with evidence that Jesus has risen. As they read it, they could think of what Paul wrote to them. Oh, this is what he's talking about. This is the newness of life. This is the power of a Christian. 
This enables us to be bold and have courage in the face of death. Continue on in verse 5. For if we've been united with Christ in a death like his, remember, we have died to sin. He says, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know, verse 6, that our old self was what? Crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That's being buried so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also what? Shout it out. Live, that we will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What is the death and the burial and resurrection that Mark is writing about? It's more than just evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. It's more than just historical facts. It's more than just doctrine that we believe. Greek text on a paper that we can draw our blind to. There is power in these events. They are to give us a picture of what God is doing in our own hearts. What he's saying is that we too have died to sin. It no longer has any power over us. That penalty, that record of debt against us has been nailed to the cross, he tells us in the book of Colossians. Not only that, he says, we have buried the old self. That's what we tried to get last week. It's it's gone. When you have a funeral, when you bury someone, it's gone. You walk on and say, it is closed. There's closure. I go and I don't dig it back up. But then he says, we've risen to be new creatures. You have a new way to live. You have a new aim to please God. We now can taste and see that God is good. We are alive and we are spiritually alive is what he speaks there. Before we could not see God as he is, but now we see him for the holy and loving God he is. Paul is writing to them And saying, because of this, I want to encourage you in Rome. Mark is writing so that those who are facing persecution will be encouraged and strengthened. What is he saying to them? Be encouraged. Your suffering is not in vain. Be of good cheer. Your Savior is risen. Be strong in fighting the idolatry that finds you in the imperial cult and the polytheistic culture that you're around. For God is one. Be strong in refusing to worship Caesar in order that you may worship and submit yourself for Jesus is God. Be strong in fighting sin for we are dead to self and we are risen with Christ. This was courage. This was something that the church of Rome needed. They find it in the resurrection of Christ. But let me say it doesn't end there for you and I need the same encouragement for it rings down through the ages today. And if I may, as I want to tell you, some of you are suffering many things. But be encouraged, 
for your suffering, whether it's physical, whether it's financial, mental, maybe it's in a relationship, your suffering is not in vain. As we transition to a minority culture, as far as the Christian culture and our beliefs, our suffering is not in vain. You need to be of good cheer. It doesn't matter what you face in life. The Savior is risen. Death is defeated. It no longer has any dominion. Satan is a defeated foe. Be strong in fighting the idolatry in your life. John Calvin, I believe it, wrote uh, that, that our heart is an idol-making factory. You may not go into your house and see little idols around that you worship to or put food and little sacrifices to, but you carry them in your hearts. It's all sorts of things. It could be money. It could be sex. It could be entertainment. It could be gaming. It could be this. It could be that. It could be your very wife and your very children, the things that you love. Those themselves become idols, as well as the one that you primp and look at each morning in the mirror. Flee from that idolatry, for Christ has risen. Be strong in refusing to worship government, refuse to worship pleasure, refuse to worship the spirit of the age. For the triune God is one. and He is God. And lastly, if I can encourage you, for this is where you and I dwell. This is where you and I are treading water. Or maybe we're in that slow of despond as in Pilgrim's Progress. We find ourselves sometimes mired so deep and feel that as much as we clean ourselves, we're still tainted. Is you and I need to be strong in fighting sin. Recognizing that we're dead to self. It must be buried and we must turn and walk a new life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm going to close with this verse. The power of the resurrection is more than just a historical fact. It's more than just something for us to hold as a doctrine. But he says here, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. You need to underline that if you have your Bible open. You must realize that, that you and I no longer live for ourselves, but for him, speaking of Christ, who for their sake died and was raised. Verse 16, from now on, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded, regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. And let's look at verse 17. Read it if you would for the very first time, though it's one you probably memorized. But would you read this and ask, Spirit, what does this mean? How do I respond? He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Would you find boldness and confidence to walk the new life that Mark records here? For Christ is risen. I would end with this. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. With every head bowed and every eye closed, would you pray this morning to pause, consider what has been written and spoken, to pray and ask the Holy Spirit, how should I respond? What does the power of the resurrection have in my life? Give me the boldness and the courage of the original readers of Mark that we may be ready to live and to die for a Savior who was risen for us. Thank you for the works and the words of Mark. Let them come alive. I pray this morning as we leave this room that we will not easily shake off the record of Mark here. Let it attach itself to our very soul and to the fabric of who we are. Lord, let us wrestle with it. And Lord, may we be subdued by your truth that you are a risen Lord and that the same power that has risen you has also made us alive. Lord, I pray until we deal with it, give us no peace. And Lord, as we respond to your word, as we embrace it, give us the courage and boldness to share that with others. For as he says, the love of God's love compels us. We thank you for sending your son. We thank you for the testimony of Mark, the ladies, of those who saw it. We thank you that you have called us and brought us to you. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.